You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Merry Christmas Eve. As we continue our time of worship, if you would turn your Bible to Titus chapter two, one of the three pastoral epistles. Thank you, Becky, for blessing us with your, your gift, stewarding it so faithfully. And thank you for musicians and Adam for leading us in worship, preparing us for worship and God's word through the preaching of his word. Uh, again, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of that money goes on the ground. Um, much of the world have never even heard the gospel. 3.2 billion people have never heard the name of Christ. And so there's 3.2 billion people who aren't celebrating Christmas today, I can assure you. Uh, we who celebrate Christmas because of what Jesus did for us, uh, what he accomplished for us, uh, we, we are called to be stewards of that gospel. And one of the ways we do that is through sacrificial giving to missions. So thank you for your years and decades of faithfulness in that. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come to you this morning through the Son of God, mighty God, the Prince of Peace. And we pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word this morning, that your word would bear much fruit in our lives. We pray that you would enlighten our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to behold the Christ, that we might adore him. And we ask, Lord, that you would revive our souls, rejoice our hearts, and make wise the simple. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In World War II, Ernest Gordon was a British captive uh, in a Japanese prison camp on the River Kwai in Burma. And he and his fellow prisoners of war had the responsibility of building this, this train track by which the Japanese soldiers would take It'd be transported to the battlefront. Well, they weren't treated well. Let's just say that. They were tortured. They were starved. Oftentimes, they were worked unto death. 16,000 prisoners died in this camp. Ernest Gordon, though, survived and, and wrote about it in a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. And it was turned into a movie later to end all wars. In that book, he tells the story of one time a one of the prisoner, uh, guards, prison guards, Japanese prison guards, um, believed that one of the shovels was missing. And so he lined up all the prisoners and he asked the guilty party who stole the shovel to step forward. Well, no one stepped forward, so he, he raised his gun to shoot all of the prisoners. And then one man stepped forward as the guilty party and the the guard clubbed him to death. After this man was put to death, they recounted the shovels and they learned that none of the shovels were missing. This man, this innocent man, had stepped forward and died that his fellow prisoners might live. Well, you can imagine the effect that his substitutionary death had on all of them. In fact, Ernest Gordon 
uh, would spend the rest of his days seeking to honor this man, this innocent man who had died in his place. really is a, an illustration of what we celebrate at Christmas. But on the other hand, it, it falls short of an adequate illustration as well. Because unlike the situation of those prisoners of war, we don't face death from a fellow sinner. What we face is the righteous wrath, okay? The righteous threat of wrath from a holy God. And in our case, the, the shovel is missing and a whole lot more. Uh, we are guilty, sinners, pervasively depraved, corrupt, and polluted. We are in rebellion to God. That is our natural state. Uh, the carnal mind is our natural state, is not subject to the law of God. But what we celebrate at Christmas, what we celebrate in the first advent is that the innocent one, that is the righteous one, the son of God, stepped forward to not only die for us, he lived for us and then died for us. And just as these prisoners uh, sought to honor uh, their substitute for the rest of their lives, that's what we're called to do. In fact, that's what Paul says is our responsibility in God's plan, to honor the one who lived in our place and died in our place. In Titus 2, he calls that in verse 10, adorning adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the language Paul uses for seeking to honor our Christ, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, in our text, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, he's going to elaborate on the two major incentives to do this. First thing we see here is that the grace of God in Jesus' first advent, advent means appearing, the grace of God in Jesus' first advent motivates us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So look with me in verse 11. He says, after calling all the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and even bond servants to adorn the doctrine of God, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. So that word for connects verse 11 to all that he has, said, he has stated thus far and summed up in our call to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. All of this can be summarized by that language of grace appearing. Now at the root of Paul's theology, which is consistent with all the scripture writers' theology, is that the Christian life is initiated, sustained, and consummated by virtue of our union in Jesus Christ through the internal operation of God's grace in Jesus and by the Spirit. This word appearing, grace appeared, it occurs four times in the New Testament, 
to refer to Jesus' first advent. So that word appear occurs four times to refer to what we celebrate at Christmas. Six times that word appears refers to Jesus' second advent. That is his glorious return to consummate all that he has inaugurated in his first advent. And so 10 times that word is used to refer to Jesus appearing. And both of those occasions, the first and the second event, are seen in this particular passage. And so we see this in Titus 2. Interestingly, um, that word appears, was used outside of New Testament Greek to refer to daybreak. That is when the sun would appear and break the darkness. And that's encouraging to us. Perhaps you are here this morning and, and you believe deep down your, your heart is too darkened by sin to ever receive the forgiveness of sins. Well, that word appears is hope for you because there is no darkness too great for the Son of God, the light of the world, to bring light to your darkness. Or perhaps you are here this morning and you are, uh, you are without hope because you have a loved one who just will not bow the knee to King Jesus and you recognize that person's eternal destiny is at stake. This verb appears is very hopeful for us all because the light has broken the darkness. And the darkness is great. Let's be honest, the darkness is great. Uh, we were created to worship uh, the creator, God, and in our sin, rather than worshiping him, we worship ourselves and creation. And the effects are devastating. Paul Tripp was mentioned earlier. Paul Tripp in another book says, we demand others to serve our agenda. We curse whatever gets in our way. We hate having to wait. We get upset when we have to go without. We strike back when we think we've been wronged. We live to satisfy our cravings. That is the fruit of self-rule. That is our natural condition. And when self rules, you can't help yourself. It's akin to being in quicksand unless God intervenes. And Christmas says that he has. The grace of God has appeared. God's grace in Jesus Christ. And notice in the second part of verse 11, bringing salvation for all people. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. If you look just above in chapter 1, verse 16, there are many who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But what it does say here is that anyone who is saved is going to be saved by this grace that has appeared in a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And when his grace comes to bear on our sin and on our brokenness, our sins are forgiven. 
We are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. We are reconciled to him. The image of God that is distorted in us begins to be renewed. And the awe of God that we are to have is renewed as well. Now remember, salvation is in one sense an event. If you are saved this morning, in one sense you've already been saved. You've been saved from the penalty of sin through Jesus' death and his resurrection. In another sense, we are being saved. So it's a process. And in another sense, it's a destination. We will be saved from the presence of sin in our glorification. In this particular passage, he's writing to Christians. As Titus 1 tells us at the beginning, he is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And so he is writing to Christians, and so here he is referring to those who have already been united to Christ by grace through faith. So here the emphasis is on the grace appearing for our sanctification. Uh, sanctification being a, a word that means it's the idea of being renewed in the whole person according to the image of God and being enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. This grace has appeared for our sanctification, for our salvation. And notice in verse 12, and this grace has come in Jesus training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the place in the present age. So grace, the Savior, which we know is a person, is also grace, the trainer. This grace is training us. Two truths just as we consider that one phrase. Sanctification requires our participation. Now, salvation's all a grace, okay? But sanctification requires our participation. We're not just passive in this process. We're to avail ourselves to all the means of grace that God has entrusted to us, both individually and corporately. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, as it says. And that's the second point. So sanctification requires our participation, and yet we recognize God in Christ and by the Spirit is the author of our sanctification. And so grace is about God, and I use this term from J.I. Packer, supernaturalizing our lives, okay? Through our union in Jesus, which causes us to desire and to act in ways in which our natural selves could never desire and act. That's why Canon Aiken was correct in the 19th century when he said, grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. It's one of the evidences that we have been saved, that we are in process of being trained by grace. Now, how then does this grace train us? Well, the text gives us two ways. We're not left to our imagination. Negatively, grace trains us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Maybe you've heard the term mortification. Puritans used to love that use that term. That essentially means to kill sin, lest sin be killing you. As John Owen says, put to death your deeds, uh, your sinful deeds in the body, as Colossians 3, 5 tells us. The goal, is, as J.I. Packer says, is to drain the life out of besetting sins. You get that? To drain the life out of besetting sins. Now, this is neither activism, what do I mean by that? Self-reliant activity, nor is it apathy, God-dependent passivity. That's not what he's saying here. This is grace-dependent effort. We are to renounce. That's on us. By grace, as we are united to Christ and granted the power of the Spirit, we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Now, what is ungodliness? Well, we could speak a whole lot on that. The Apostle Paul gives us some insights in Romans 1 when he says that the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth about God. That's what it means to be ungodly, to suppress the truth about God. And then he goes on and says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they grateful. That's what it means to be ungodly. And Paul says, grace has appeared in the first advent to give us the power, the divine resources to renounce ungodliness. John Piper describes ungodliness as this, when the glory of God is not honored and the greatness of God not admired and the beauty of God not treasured and the person of God not loved and the power of God not praised. We're to renounce these things in the power of the Holy Spirit as we avail ourselves to the means of grace. We're also to renounce worldly passions. Now, the devil's not a creator he takes what is good and he perverts it. And so all of us have been given God-given passions. And what happens is, is these passions are turned on their head and they, are, they, they, they begin a revolt against God. Paul calls them worldly passions. What are worldly passions? These are inordinate desires set on worldly things. That is, things that are not consistent with the law of God. Things that are not consistent with his character and his gospel. This is worldliness. Worldliness is a, a sleepiness of the soul in which the, the status and the cares and the pleasures of this world seem more real to us and stunning to us than, the, than they should be. And the word of God and the truths of God and the words of scripture become abstractions unable to grip our souls. 
That's worldliness. And Paul says, by grace, we can renounce these worldly passions. And so the true training of heaven in Christ begins with renouncing everything which stands in the way of our development as new creatures in Christ. But positively, he says, grace trains us for active godliness. Notice, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace trains us to live, to live. Um, Whereas the negative aspect has been called mortification, putting to death our our deeds in the body. This has been called vivification, okay? We live unto God. We put on the new man as we put off the old man. And, And notice what he says. Vivification involves living Self-control. That word self-control is found throughout the pastoral epistles. Older men are called to be self-controlled. Younger women are called to be self-controlled. Titus 2. The younger men are to be called self-controlled. Pastors in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 are called to be self-controlled. Now, what does that mean to be self-controlled? Well, there's two aspects to that. First of all, it means Discipline towards ultimate things. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Discipline towards ultimate things. As we close out 2023, as we begin 2024, may the grace of God be so at work in your life that you commit to discipline yourself towards ultimate things. You, You open up your Bible. You, you begin a life of praying through the Bible. I have several books in my study on how to pray the scripture. If you would like one, come see me after the service. I have several copies that I could give. Learning how to pray the scriptures, discipline towards ultimate things, disciplining yourself to be a part of God's people. Corporate worship is a means by which we renounce ungodliness. It's a means by which we renounce worldly passions. It's a means by which we live self-controlled lives. So it's discipline towards ultimate things and it's self-denial of sinful things. That's self-control. It's self-denial. It's dying to those things that will not make you happy on your deathbed. It's dying to those things that are not mediated to us through the Son of God and has the stamp of his blessing. It's dying to those things that you cannot thank God in Christ for. We are to live self-controlled. Notice as well, we're to live upright. So if self-control means to be, with regard to relation to ourselves, to live upright means our relation to our fellow man, our neighbors, our family, and our church family. It means... I don't sin against you. That's what it means. It means I don't slander you. I don't destroy your name with others. I protect you. You are, I am your keeper in that sense. I protect your reputation because your name is all you have. 
And if I do sin against you, my repentance is as notorious as my sin is against you. That's what it means to live upright. And then third, he says, to live godly. So if being self-controlled is my relation to myself, being upright is my relation to you, my neighbor, living godly is my relation to God. Now, the natural relationship between fallen man and God, and God is this. I do this so that he will do this for me. I, I give that he might give. I obey so that I might be accepted. Do you realize there are prominent pulpits that preach this doctrine? God only gives his best to those who give their best. That might sound right to you, but it's the spirit of antichrist. God gives his best because we are in rebellion to him. And so to live godly lives is to give because he has given. I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. And note he says, in the present age. This grace has appeared that we might renounce what needs to be renounced, that we might live this life of self-control, uprightness, and godliness in the present age. What is the present age? The present age began in Genesis 3 with Adam's sin. When sin entered this world, the present age erupted into time and space. But here's the thing about this present age. And I want us to hear this. This is very important. Because of Jesus' victory in the first advent that we celebrate at Christmas, because of his cross where he satisfied God's wrath on our sin, and because of his resurrection, and because of his ascension to the right hand of God, the age to come has erupted into this present age. And so now we live, think about a Venn diagram just for a moment. We live in the shaded area of a Venn diagram where the circle of the present age and the circle of the age to come overlap, all right? That's the good news of the gospel for every believer. And so every day, every day, every single one of us, 10,000 times a day, we are choosing which age do we prefer. Do we prefer this age, the present age? Or do we prefer, do we find our hope, our identity in the age to come? Only one of those ages has a future. Do you understand that? Only one of those ages has a future. The other age has been fatally wounded. When Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the grave, this present age 
was put to death. And wisdom and the grace of Christ says we are to renounce all the remnants of this present age as those who've received that grace in Jesus and we are to live as if he is victorious in this present age as people for whom the end of the ages has come uprightly, godly, self-control. And so the grace of God in Jesus Christ, his first advent, motivates us to, to adorn the doctrine of the, the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But secondly, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, second advent, also motivates us to adorn this doctrine. Look with me in verse 13. So as we are renouncing as we are living as grace bearers, grace recipients, but not grace graduates. Verse 13 says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing, there's that word again. First time that word was used, it referred to Christmas, the first advent. This is referring to his return. Looking, waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are two days in my calendar, Martin Luther said. This day and that day. What a great perspective. And this day... The grace of God in Jesus is at work training us for that day. And a part of that training is looking, looking, waiting, anticipating that blessed hope. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This reminds us that currently the way things are, and they're broken, right? And the way things will be are not the same, all right? But one day, the way things are and the way things will be and the way things should be will be one and the same because of this second advent, because of the victory of his first advent and because of the hope and the glory that will be revealed in his second advent. Again, that's confirmed by this language, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to note this is one of the great texts that explicitly tells us that Jesus is God. He is not a lesser being. He is equal to God the Father. He is distinct from God the Father, but he is equal in essence and power and glory to God the Father. He is God of very God. And our salvation requires God himself because only God can save. And note, as God, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as the God-man, at his first coming, it could, say, it could be said that we have seen the glory of God. 
We saw his glory through the sign miracles. We saw God's glory in Christ through his teachings and ultimately through his, his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension. But in a very real sense, that glory was still veiled in his first advent. But when he returns, the veil will be removed and we will behold him in all his splendor and we shall see him as he is. That day of his return will consummate. That is, he, it will finish his salvation project. It's our hope. It's our blessed hope. A, a project that was inaugurated by his substitutionary victory. Notice with me in verse 14, the last verse of this passage. Who gave himself? Who gave himself? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. There's a whole lot of theology in that, that one phrase. Notice, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself for himself a people. This phrase, he gave himself for us, is the grace of Christmas, the grace of the first advent, all in one phrase. And it was voluntary. The voluntary nature of his life and death is emphasized by this word gave. He gave himself. And the fact that it was for our benefit is found in that phrase, for us, for us, for us who are guilty. The innocent one, the righteous one, stepped forward as our substitute. And there were three results of him giving himself. First of all, notice, to redeem us from all lawlessness. What is lawlessness? It's our daily breaking of God's law. There's never been a day in your life that you have not broken the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We're already done. The last commandment, thou shalt not covet. We're done. And everything in between. And he came, it says, to redeem us from having broken God's law. John Webster, the great theologian, says it this way. He buys us out of slavery to evil. He pays for our release. He takes up our cause. What does that mean to you when someone takes up your cause? He sets us at liberty. He is Savior and Redeemer. So he came to redeem us from every lawless deed. How does he do that? By paying the purchase price. Our lives deserve death. He paid the price by his own death. But second, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Think about that. He redeemed us that we might be owned by him. 
that we might be his. But this language of purify, it is loaded language. Paul is intentionally picking up a prophecy from Ezekiel 37, 23. And here's what the prophecy says. Remember, Ezekiel was writing when Israel, when Judah was in exile. But he promised a day when one would come. And here's what that day would bring about. I will save them. This is Yahweh talking. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them. There's the word. Same word. Purify them. I will cleanse them and they shall be my people. And I will be their God. That's the language of being his possession. In other words, that day is here. That day is here. This Christ has come to redeem us from our lawless deeds that we might be God's, that we might belong to him, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be purified. And then finally, that we might be zealous for every good work. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Where does the zeal for godliness and uprightness, okay, and self-controlled lives come from? Where does the zeal for denying worldliness and ungodliness come from? It comes from understanding what Christ has done for us that we might be zealous for good works. Understanding this gospel is indispensable in supplying the motivation that is the why of what we do, the enablement that is the how of what we do, and also defining the what of what we do, the good works. Designed that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Indeed, as we close out this year, we have one more week in the year, as we begin 2024, as we celebrate the first advent. I think it would behoove all of us as believers to ask ourselves, what impact has the grace of God in Jesus Christ had on your life? Could it be said that you are one who daily renounces, renounces worldly passions and ungodliness and lives self-controlled and lives, okay, in a way that reflects zeal for God? Has the grace of God taken hold in your life? You know, it was impossible for Ernest Gordon to remain the same after what this substitute did for him. As much as that might move us, that story, it pales in comparison to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we celebrate in the first advent. That's why Carl F. H. Henry said, the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. Amen? As Adam and the musicians come forward, the application is there for you as a believer. We've already made it. Paul made it for us. He did all the legwork for us here. 
What you need to do now is depend on that grace and recognize it is sufficient for you to renounce ungodliness in your lives, to renounce worldly passions. That grace is sufficient for you to live, live unto God, self-controlled. What is self-control? Self-discipline towards ultimate things and self-denial towards those things that God will not be pleased with in the day of accounting. To live in a way that you are zealous for God's good works. Cling to him this Christmas season. Cling to him as you go into the new year and recognize grace is sufficient because of what Jesus has accomplished for us in the first advent. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.